Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the mercy and grace that you showed us when you sent your Son into the world to display for us perfect love. And we are grateful, Father God, that we get to gather every week. I mean, we get to do this every day if we desire and think about you, delight in you, worship you, magnify you for the God that you really are. And today, um, coming up to our celebration of Christmas, Father, thank you for blessing us with all the things that you've brought into our lives, our families, our friends. And I pray that uh, as we contemplate joy in this season and as we contemplate joy today and how that relates to love, that you would do a work in our hearts, get our eyes fixed on Christ, and that we would see that he is really the embodiment of joy, that we would see that with the eyes of our hearts. I ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we have spent the entirety of the month of December focusing on really one, one topic this entire month, and that subject has been joy. Um, in this Advent season, we've been in a, a series called The Anatomy of Joy, and you can probably make a mental picture of what that might mean, the different parts of joy, because the reason is the advent of Jesus is really the advent of joy. In Luke 2, the angel declares to the shepherds, good news of great joy. The promised Savior has come into the world to rescue his people, and this is good news, of, of great, of extraordinary joy that this has happened. And we spent all December really staring at the face of what this joy is, what it looks like. It's different elements, it's different components. And we've done that through the lens of 1 Peter chapter 1. So in 1 Peter chapter 1 from verses 3 to 9, we've kind of surveyed that text over and over again. We're going to do it again today and, and again to, uh, next Sunday. And we've been effectively asking what is Christian joy? Like, what does it look like to have a joy in God because of what Christ accomplished um, in his life and in his death and in his resurrection? And what we see in First Peter is this diagram being sort of painted of the anatomy of joy, all these different parts. We saw the first week, hope is a massive part of our joy in Christ. And then we saw that faith unites us with that hope in the present. And then last week, if you were here last week, we saw that suffering is not a barrier to joy in the life of a Christian, but trials and suffering are actually part of the fabric of the life of a Christian because it pushes us deeper into embracing Jesus as our joy. And this week, we're going to be asking another question about it. Uh, we're going to be looking really at the very center of what joy is in 1 Peter 1. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, grab them, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. If you don't have your Bible, we'll have the text up here on the screen. This is going to be our focus today. We're only going to, we're only going to focus on this verse in that passage in 1 Peter 1. Peter says here, Though you have not seen him, and he's talking about that him there is Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, 
you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Now next week, God willing, we'll be looking at that last word, glory, and and, and really diving deep into what that means in this passage and really throughout all of Scripture and all of reality. Um, But this week, as we prepare our hearts to celebrate Christmas, what I'd like us to do is look at love in this passage. That phrase, you love him, you love Jesus. Peter says that we haven't seen Jesus, and this is true, I suppose, I'm going to take a guess. None of you guys have physically seen Jesus. So this is true about everyone in the room. But if you're a Christian, though that you haven't seen him, you love him. You love Jesus. He's telling us here that although we've never seen him before and though we don't see him now, we love him and we believe in him and we rejoice. And he means that we rejoice with the very same joy that the angel had in in Luke, or the angel spoke of in Luke 2, an inexpressible joy that is filled with glory. That's the joy of a Christian. That's what the joy of a Christian looks like. And that's the entire purpose of this passage, if we were to pull it out from 3 to 9. That's what this entire text has been looking at. Now, as Peter draws this diagram of joy in the life of a Christian, he is zeroing in, today at least in our text, on love. You believe in him, he says. And that kind of love that you have for him is a kind of love that trusts him. And this is important because not all love is a trusting love. Some love isn't trusting But the love that we have for Jesus lays hold of him and trusts him. And not only that, but our love for Jesus drives us to rejoice. We talked about this earlier. Rejoicing is the visible and the audible expression of joy. Joy bubbles over the surface of the floodgates of your heart. You rejoice. And that's what he says happens here. We rejoice. It's an outward expression of this inward reality. That trust and that, that joy is coming from this love that we have for Christ. And so this is the kind of love that Peter's talking about, this trusting love, this rejoicing love, even though none of us have ever seen him before. And so to understand this dimension, this aspect of joy, especially at, in this season, Christmas season, um, I just want to ask one question today, and, and the question is really simple. What does it mean to love Jesus? Like, what is that actually, what's the experience of loving Jesus, doing what he says right there? What is that like? How does it come into being? Where does it come from? Like, why is that even possible? And I think we need to take a step back and, and not really assume anything, because if, if you've been a Christian for a while, especially a long time, you may think that there's nothing abnormal about loving Jesus. It's just what you've done, what you do. It's normal to love, love Jesus because you've grown up in a Christian family or you went to a Christian school or you've gone to a Christian church your whole life. Um, and that may be your story, but I want to pull back from that assumption and just recognize the fact that it's not normal at all to love Jesus. It is not normal to love 
a man who lived and died 2,000 years ago who you've never seen, you've never met. The only time you've heard him speak is when people have read his words from a page. It is abnormal for us to assume that that right there is rational, to love Jesus. Yet if you're a Christian, when I read these words, though you have not seen him, you love him, your heart heard those words and said, yeah, I really do love him. I've never seen him, but I do love him. And what makes this so strange is it's not like, we're not talking about like an abstract concept. Like I love peace and peace happened, you know, at this point in history. Or, or even God, like thinking about God, God is not a concept we can visualize, but we can think about a man. And we don't just love Jesus like we admire someone in history. Like, I really admire this person, or I cherish this person. He was a great historical figure. This is real love. And, and for people who've tasted this before, it, it's, it's not only real love, but it kind of makes every other love in the world pale in comparison. The love that we have for this man, Christ. And it is at the heart of what Christianity is. The question, do you love Jesus, is really where you fall on answering that question determines whether or not you've seen him, trust him, and love him with the eyes of your heart. Um, because all other religions, interestingly enough, like religions in general, and even like worldviews that aren't religious, like atheism, for example, all other worldviews begin with a, a framework that starts with propositions do this, do this, believe this, understand this, facts. But Christianity isn't first a series of facts that you have to agree with. Christian, and though you do have to agree with facts in Christianity, don't get me wrong, Christianity doesn't begin there. It begins with an encounter with a man, Christ. And it begins with falling in love with him, and then all the facts come into alignment with him. For example, Matthew 10, Jesus says this stunning thing in Matthew 10. I mean, this, think about what he's saying here. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So Jesus, is re he's really clear when he talks that Loving Jesus, a, a real human being who we've never seen, is central to what it means to be a Christian, to what it means to be his follower. And the reason is utter, utterly remarkable, not just because we haven't seen him, but because of who he really is. It is shocking that we love Jesus, not because he isn't worthy of our love. Jesus is infinitely worthy of our love. Infinitely worthy. He is the most precious beautiful, glorious reality in all of you, the universe. Without question, he is. But when Christ arrived in this world, that beauty and that glory was met with blind eyes and callous hearts. Jesus to the natural person is not lovable at all, especially when he says stuff like that. To the natural person, he is not lovable. When God entered human history in the form of his son, Christ, he did not take a form that would invite people to look at him, to love him, to cherish him. In fact, 
Jesus was rejected even before he was born. And what I want to do for the next few minutes is look at how this is true and then marvel at why and how we came to love him. Isaiah 53, 700 years before Jesus was born, speaking specifically about the Christ, about Jesus, says this, first three verses, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, Jesus, grew up before him, before God, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. That's Jesus he's talking about. He's talking about Jesus. 700 years before he's born, Isaiah had a prophecy, all of 53, chapter 53 is about Christ, and he's saying that Jesus, when the Messiah would come into the world, he would be rejected and disregarded by mankind. And if you've heard the Christmas story, you know that this is true. I mean, Luke 2, when it came time for him to be born, Joseph and Mary are in Bethlehem. They're trying to find a place to have this baby. And what does the innkeeper say? There's no room for them in the end. There was no room for Jesus before he's even born. In Matthew 2, so let's go beyond his birth. Matthew 2, this is a Christmas story <laughs> somewhat. Um, when the Magi come to give Jesus gifts, they go to Herod, the king, Herod the Great, and they say, we've heard that the king of the Jews has been born. We want to give him gifts. Herod's not cool with this because he's king. And once the Magi leave, Herod issues an edict for all male children two years and younger to be destroyed. Why? Because he's trying to kill Jesus. He's trying to kill the person that Isaiah was talking about. And then they're saved because God tells them, you need to go to Egypt. Joseph, Mary, Jesus, go to Egypt. They're saved. Herod dies. They come back. And you know where they end up? Not downtown Jerusalem, not a popular city. They end up going to Nazareth. And Nazareth was this no-name town, essentially, which had a, a very low reputation, to whom, to, uh, of which Nathaniel, which would be one of Jesus' followers, when he first heard, we've got this guy, Jesus, we think he's the Messiah, well, where is he from? He's from Nazareth. Nathaniel responds and says, no way. Nothing good can come out of Nazareth. Nothing. And so his point there was that the Christ, the Messiah, could never come out of this town. It would just be impossible. And so this is Jesus. This is Jesus who was despised and rejected by men. Isaiah is not just talking about the last six hours of his life. Isaiah is talking about all of Jesus' life. He was rejected from his first breath on. And we know this because we see it happen over and over and over in the Gospels. 
uh, John 1 actually summarizes how the people received him or not uh, really clearly. John 1, verses 10 and 11. John says that he, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet, the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Think about what he's saying here. John is surveying Jesus' life. He's looking at all the different encounters that Christ had when he was alive, and he's saying, you know, when he came, the world didn't receive him. The world actually did not receive him. And even his own people, broadly speaking, did not receive him. The world didn't know him. His people didn't receive him. He was rejected. He was despised. Think about this. Christ made the universe. It's his. It belongs to him. And when he came in the flesh incarnate, the maker of the universe was despised and rejected and disregarded. And you might, you might respond rightly that he wasn't rejected by everyone. Of course he wasn't. We're here. Clearly he wasn't rejected by everyone. Many people followed him. But the question we need to ask when we look and survey everyone who followed Jesus around, especially the people who followed him around when he was alive, is did they really love him like we see in 1 Peter 1? Like the love that Peter was talking about. Was that their affection towards him, or did they just simply want something from him? You remember the scene, Jesus uh, feeds 5,000 people on the hillside in Galilee, and then he crosses the sea to Capernaum. I think it's Capernaum. And people follow him in droves. And he turns to them in John 6, 26, and he tells them, says, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. That's why they were following him. In fact, when he left there, he left mainly because they were going to take him by force and try to make him their king. It wasn't about a love or adoration for him or what he desired. It was about their own desire. Jesus for the people in, in view here, but broadly speaking, was a means to an end. He was someone who could overthrow Rome. He could make food at the drop of a hat. And he could heal their diseases and their suffering. They'd seen him do it. He was a means to an end. All the signs that validated who he was, the Son of God, they saw as simply a means to their own purposes and their own end. And John 2 tells us, that this is a kind of receiving, but it's not the right kind. It's a broken kind, a false kind of receiving. John 2, 23 tells us how Jesus responded to this kind of receiving. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. John's saying Jesus knew from everyone who was following him what was in man because he knew that there's a way that you can believe in the name of Jesus that has nothing to do with his worth, nothing to do with his value, nothing to do with his beauty, 
but only what you can get from him. What can I get from you? He knew their hearts. Their hearts were not in love with him. Their hearts did not embrace him for who he was. They were in love with something else, and they saw Jesus as the ticket to get that something else. And so they received him in a way that was dishonoring and devaluing. He was a means to an end. But this, of course, wasn't everyone. It wasn't everyone. There were people who saw him, saw the signs, and received him with joy and gladness. They genuinely loved Jesus. He wasn't there for ulterior motives. They loved him and they rejoiced in him. But even those who loved him, even those who were closest to him, could not, in the end, stomach the weight of his rejection. And they left him. They couldn't take it. John 16 shows us this clearly. Jesus knew it before it was going to happen. Jesus answered them. This is his closest group of friends. These are the people that he's ate with, lived with, cried with, hugged, cherished for the last at least three years. And they say to him at the end, we believe, we really do believe. And he asks the question, do you believe? Do you believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. This is exactly what Isaiah 53 is talking about. He was despised and rejected by men. We esteemed him not. Even the ones who really loved him, even the ones who cherished him would flee at the end of the day when the pressure got too tough. And you know how the rest of the story goes. This man, after he is abandoned by his friends, was arrested, tried multiple times until the crowd got what they desired, which was his crucifixion, and he was stripped, beaten, flogged, humiliated, mocked, spat on, forced to carry his own cross. Then he was ultimately nailed to his cross where he would spend the next six hours suffocating to death. That's what happened to Jesus. Pinned to a tree, naked, outside the city of Jerusalem for people to gawk at like a common criminal. So horrific and badly were his wounds that you would hardly recognize he was human, let alone that he was Jesus. And yet Peter tells us, I mean, this, this verse in, in 1 Peter uh, 1.8 is astonishing. Peter tells us that that man on that tree, we love him. We love him. How is this possible? How is it that we love this man who even people who saw him face to face rejected him and despised him? How is it possible that we could love him? Isaiah said he had no form, no majesty, no beauty that we would even look at him, no less receive him and desire him. The Bible's telling us this is how we would respond to Jesus. I think a lot of us get kind of like we romanticize the idea. If I was around at that time and I could see him, I would know it. I'd give him a hug. But the truth of the matter is, would you? Most of them didn't. 
And again, I want to just say, this is not because he's unworthy of affection and love and adoration. If you love him, you know he is infinitely worthy of all of that. He is worthy of our love. He is worthy of our devotion. He is worthy of our adoration. But we are born blind to this. We are naturally, the natural human heart, apart from the grace of God, looks at Jesus and we see him as boring. We see him as tired. It's not worth my time. We don't see majesty and glory when we look at Christ. We see something that's less exciting than TV or Netflix or Xbox or football or food or drink. To the natural human heart, we do not see in Jesus, we see him really as the impediment to our joy and not the embodiment of it. And this is why Peter's line in verse 8 is so staggering. If it's true that we actually do love him, and I know that it's true for many of you, if it's true that we actually love him, this line should, should shake us to our core. It is astonishing because it holds out the notion that something massive has happened in our hearts. Something has shifted at a Copernican level. A miracle has happened in us. And when we get to this realization, what we're really doing is we're kind of staring at the face of what Christmas is, why Christmas exists, this miracle, the fact that we love Jesus, though we've never even seen him before. It's not a naturally occurring phenomenon. It's not a rational response to someone with no former majesty to fall in love with him. It is an act of God in the heart of a human being. Because the goal of Christmas wasn't just the manger. It didn't stop there. The goal of Christmas was that through the manger, there would be on the other end a cross. And on that cross, Jesus would, in his body, obliterate every obstacle between his worth and us seeing it. He would take those out of the way, and we would see with the eyes of our hearts, who he, uh, he was. All the sin, all of the blindness that, that corrupts our ability to see him for who he really is, all of that is swallowed up by his sacrifice. It's the reason that Jesus came in the world wasn't for a holiday called Christmas. The reason Jesus came into the world was to get through the holiday to the cross on the other end so that this could be a reality for us. The true miracle of Christmas, I think we, we should focus rightly on the incarnation. It is an awesome thing to think that the living God, who has been from everlasting and will go on to everlasting, took the form of a man, penetrated and infiltrated human history, and said, I'm going to take for myself a people. That is an awesome thing. But what's more awesome than the incarnation is that on the other end of the incarnation was a cross where he would lay down his life to purchase a people for himself. That is an awesome thing. And in the purchasing of those people, he would create, he would bring into existence a new kind of joy. The joy that First Peter's talking about. The joy that Peter's talking about. An inexpressible joy that is filled to the brim with glory. That is experienced by everyone who has, who has desired and received and trusted Christ like we see here. No matter if we see him with our eyes or not, we adore him. We love him. 
the experience of loving Jesus at its very essence is to be loved by God. 1 John 4 tells us we only love Jesus because he first loved us. And, and he doesn't mean like cause and effect. Jesus loved us and he's hoping that, that we love him in return. He means the very experience of loving Jesus is the reality of his love bubbling up in our souls. Like it is the, the essence of our love is his love for us. And though we would not receive his son in a million years, God looked upon into the depths of our souls with all the brokenness, all the areas where we've fallen short, all the areas where we haven't lived the way we ought to, looked through that and he breathed his own love into the darkness until we could see him as he rightly is and embrace him as our treasure. That's what it looked like for those verses to become true for each of us. That's what God did. Our love for Jesus is a supernatural echo in the soul of God's love for us, poured into our hearts through faith, of which without Christmas there would be no love. So I just want you to consider for a moment as we close here how profound this is. Just consider for a moment. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? If you do, then you need to know this. God loves you. Your love for Christ is evidence of his love for you. He loves you more than you can possibly imagine. Because he looked into our souls, bankrupt though they were, of seeing him and treasuring him as he ought to, clinging to you know, half-hearted, temporary, finite joys in this life, and he said into our soul, this isn't how it's going to end for you. This isn't your story. He said that there is a treasure that exists that is more glorious and more beautiful than you can possibly imagine, more beautiful than you've ever seen, and his name is Jesus. And at that moment, the eyes of our hearts opened, and we said, yeah, I don't know how I missed it. I don't know how I missed it. Jesus is my treasure, and we see him in his beauty. And what was once boring and tired and despised in a moment, something that we didn't esteem at all and wouldn't give the time of day, he becomes ground zero for the greatest experience of joy we could possibly imagine. And this is what it means to love Jesus. This is what it means to love him. God poured his love into our souls until the blindness cleared, the clouds moved out of the way, and we see the face of our Savior, Jesus Christ, with the eyes of our hearts. We see him, and we know he's not only real, but he loves us, and he is an inexpressibly glorious treasure. My, this is been my prayer this entire series, is that we would know the love of God, if we could just understand what his love was, if we could just know it, so many barriers in our lives, so many difficulties that we struggle with would pass to the side. If we could just experience the fullness of his love and let it lay hold of our hearts in such a way that we are drawn into an undying devotion to Christ. It's, what it, it's, what it, it's at the center of what it means to be a Christian. So in, in the next few moments, if your faith is in Christ, I would invite you as we worship here to participate in communion. 
the Lord's Supper and receive the elements. And I would ask that as you do this, you reflect on not just this season in a vague way, and not just the manger, but you look through the manger to the cross. The reason that Jesus came was the cross, and that you'd recognize the true miracle that if verse 8 is real for you, if verse 8 of 1 Peter 1 is real for you, that you really do love him, you really do love him, that the reason you do is because of God's love. Underneath all of your love for him is the everlasting arms of God holding you up as a foundation for your love. From manger to cross, the work of God through Christ Jesus was God saying, I'm not going to give up on you no matter what. I have you, I love you, and you will see this treasure even if I have to die to make it happen. That's what this season is about. Let's pray and ask God to do this. Father God, I know that in a group like this, we are all over the spectrum in how we encounter the realities that we talked about today. There are some people who when I said, when I quoted Peter and said, we love you, we love you, Jesus, they said yes and amen. And there's some people who said, I know I do, but I don't feel like it today. I know that I love him, but I just don't feel like it today, or it's not what it should be. The love you're talking about isn't where it should be. And there are other people who I know hear this, and they're like, I've never experienced that before. I was taught that Christianity is something else. And there are other people who may have heard this and say, I've never heard of a love or a joy like this before, and I would like to believe that it's real. And my prayer for every one of us, myself included in all of this, is that you would make the reality of your love so clear to us in this room as we worship, as we pray, as we participate in communion, that it would be undeniable how beautiful Jesus is, that what was despised and rejected by our flesh for years maybe would become the sweetest treasure in the universe that any faint faith in us would be solidified with an experience of joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, Father God. Come into this room, I pray, and do this, Father God, for my friends. In the name of Jesus, amen.